my father's sister, my Aunt Frances, had this pristine home. And uh, when we went over there as little kids, you know, you had to be really careful what you touched. And she had this piano. And I just, I didn't even know what it was, you know. And I was four years old, and I remember one day when nobody was around, because she couldn't touch it or anything, you know. <laughs> and one day, uh, when nobody was around, I went up to it and I hit a, I hit a note. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's music. And I, that's when I had this, I had two epiphanies right on top of each other. And the first one was when I, when I went to the right, I noticed the notes got higher. And when I went to the left, I noticed they got lower. And right at that moment, uh, music just became very clear to me. You know, it was like, oh, that's that's how music is created. Because I realized then that anything I heard, I could hear how it was created, where it sat, you know, on the on that piano, so to speak. So that was the first epiphany. And then also at that very moment, I remember realizing the infinite nature of the creation of music because I was immediately flooded with um, the understanding of musical creativity. It was almost as if I, I was picking up from where I left off in another life or something like that. You know, it was like uh, somebody tapping you on the shoulder, okay, you're, you're four years old now so you can kind of get this, you know. And, uh, and then I crapped my pants. <laughs> Uh, but I remember feeling uh, kind of like this, this stunning euphoria about the creation of music. And I knew right then and there that, that that's all I, I, I wanted to do. I, I didn't even, I've never considered anything else otherwise because I never thought, I, nothing ever attracted me as much. So um, as a youngster, you're usually influenced by the music that your parents have going on in the house. That's very common. And my parents were listening to like Italian polka music, <laughs> and uh, but they had this one CD, and it was uh, the soundtrack to West Side Story. And man, when I heard that, I probably was about six or seven. It just it completely captivated me. There was a story in it. This historical music, Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim. I mean, these guys, they're inspired from head to foot. And that whole presentation just ca captured me, and, and it was cool, it had, it had like fights in it, and it had love in it, and it had these unbelievable melodies. So I was enchanted, basically, by this. And then um, I started playing accordion, because I was an Italian boy from Long Island, <laughs> and I hated it. You know, I hated it. I liked that we play smoke on the water on the accordion. <laughs> and I had, uh, or in Agata de Vida, boy, when I discovered that, that was great. But um, I learned, I was always fascinated with music, the composition of music. So the good thing about the accordion for me at the age of eight, nine years old was I learned how to read music. And I, I immediately understood music the moment I saw it. It looked like beautiful art to me, you know. I could never draw. I was not really good with in school, I wasn't very, I wasn't like one of these exceptional kids that was smart. Matter of fact, if anything, I was probably, you know, um, subpar intelligence, you know. But music just resonated so deeply with me and, and just the way it looked. And I realized, even at that age, what composing was. Because I could hear it. And I could hear West Side Story and then see it in my head on the manuscript paper. 
all the different instruments and everything. And I said, that's that's what I want. I'm gonna I'm gonna master this understanding of musical composition. And then an extraordinary stroke of good luck. I, when I was in seventh grade, I had this music teacher named Bill Westcott, and he uh, for six years or so. Yeah, six years in high school, I took these intensive, intensive music theory classes with him. And I learned all about composition, I learned about um, how to uh, write for different instruments. I couldn't play the other instruments. But then there was that fateful day where, um, I think I was about, well, going back a little more, when I was about six, six years old, I walked into the uh, auditorium in my school at Rushmore car place and there was this kid he was about nine and he was playing the guitar now when you're six somebody that's like nine is like a god you know and he had a guitar and the moment I saw it you know there's certain times in your life where um, everything be it's like a moment of clarity you know it's like everything stands still and you become very present and when I think back to that moment that, that was I was I became completely present with what I was seeing I could tell you what the kid was wearing I could tell you the way the place smelled you know I could see the color of the seats and hear just this kid strumming and I thought that that guitar was it was the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life it was almost as if you know okay you you got your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters and you love them all very much and, and life is really great, but here's a surprise, kid. This is in the world, too. And I saw that, that's how I felt when I saw the guitar. It was like all the Christmases you can imagine rolled up into one. And I immediately became enamored with it, and I fantasized about it constantly. But I also had this um, sort of, uh, I don't know, a sense of uh, in inferiority or something. I always felt less than or you know so and especially when it came to the idea of playing the guitar because if in my town if you played the guitar you either thought you were cool or you really were cool and I was neither you know so I resisted playing the guitar and I, I, I but it was always this this deep rooted fantasy that was just out of touch and then there was that fateful day where my sister brought home Led Zeppelin 2 and that was it once I heard that I was 12 years old and I said that's it I'm playing the guitar nothing's gonna stop me Jimmy Page was the coolest thing I'd ever even could have conceived of uh, it was when I heard the solo to Heartbreaker you know that was it and I had a friend that had uh, I'd go over his house and he had this guitar on the wall and it was this cheap little red Tesco Del Rey, you know? And I, I would just go over his house just to stare at his guitar. It was like every time I saw it, it was like like butterflies, you know? like Just like, oh my God, it's so beautiful, you know? And, and finally I went over there once and I, and I had the nerve, the courage to ask, what, you got this guitar on the wall, why don't you ever play it? And he goes, oh that? I don't want to play that. I'll sell it to you for five dollars. And I just, I, I scraped up every penny I could and I went and I bought this guitar and that was it. I, it, it never left me, literally, uh, except when I had to go to school. And that was only because I started bringing it to school, but they then wouldn't allow it. Um, but you hear stories about people, you know, that say they slept with their instrument and everything. Yeah, <laughs> or every night. 
I even took it to the bathroom with me. <laughs> I, I would even try to play left-hand exercises while I was eating, you know. Um, and uh, but the real, the real great. So I've had so much good fortune. It was just incredible. But the really extraordinary thing that happened for me was um, a friend of mine, John Sergio, who lived just right down the street, was always like this, uh, really into all sorts of music. So I was, I just thought the only band in the world was Led Zeppelin, you know? And I also had this 8-track cassette of uh, Woodstock, and it was stuck on one channel, and it was Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner and Sly and the Family Stone, and I just listened to that over and over and over, and I would lay in bed, and this is very interesting, uh, you become what you think about. You know, you, you morph into basically what you, how you see yourself in your own mind's eye. Um, and I would just put those headphones on when nobody was around. I'd sneak into my sister's room and uh, just create this picture of a character, myself basically, being this, like almost a wizard with the instrument. Complete control, complete completely graceful, effortless, moving around, playing for all, all my friends and just creating this, this feeling of upliftment and no limitations and moving, moving with the instrument and the music as, as one kind of cohesive entity, you know, where the music kind of flows. And you know, when you're in your imagination, you, you have the right to think whatever you want. You know, it, the idea of being that, I just, I was like, there's no way. I'm not nearly cool enough or anything like that to do anything like that. But I kept chiseling away at this picture, and um, it just started to manifest. And the first real powerful, as I was saying before, one of the most extraordinary, I call it the Vi Advantage, was my friend John Sergio was turning me on to all this incredible cool music like Queen and Jethro Tull and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Deep Purple and all this stuff and he played guitar but he could actually play like a song like a dare 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 and I'm like <gasps> I said you must be the best guitar player in, the, in our whole town and he said to me well if you think I'm good you should see my guitar teacher Joe Satriani and I was like 12 years old, like, I didn't even know how to string the instrument, you know? And I got Joe's number, and I couldn't even afford lessons, so I split, split lessons with another kid that I was kind of playing, I was in a band with, but I played keyboards. And, and we only played Jumpin' Jack Flash, because it's the only two chords I knew. <laughs> and um, it was Frank Strassel, and, and him and I, we contacted Joe, and I started taking lessons. And very shortly after that, I, um, I just started taking lessons on my own. And that was the greatest, uh, the greatest benefit to my musical career was my lessons with Joe, because I'll tell you what, Joe Satriani was always an incredible player. He was always, he was music personified. His ears are just gigantic, and every time he would touch the instrument, no matter what he was playing, whether it was a scale or an exercise or a melody. What came out sounded like music. And I was like 12 and maybe he was 15 or something. So for three years, I took lessons from Joe and they were the most um, important thing in my life was my guitar lesson. It was sacred. And I, I focused on it intensely. And Joe um, was also a student of Bill Westcott in the same high school. 
but Joe was, I was composing with all that information I was getting, but not even realizing how to apply it to the instrument at all. But Joe knew how to integrate all of that music theory and all this cool colors that music theory can offer you um, into the guitar. So that's what he started teaching me, you know, with how to, you know the modes, but now this is what they mean on the instrument. And you know our lessons, they just turned into these, um, these just like jam sessions, like six hours. You know, where we'd sit in his backyard, just back to back, and we would just play and listen. You know, and and that's the most important quality to being a musician is your ability to listen, to be able to listen to your environment, to be able to listen to what another musician is putting out, and to be able to listen to the melodies that are in your own head, because they're there. I guess all too often people don't hear them because um, they're so fascinated with the technical aspect of playing because uh, it's very easy to become fascinated with the technical aspect because the, when you practice you get better and the more you practice the more you practice the more your fingers start moving you, you can start fascinating yourself with how your fingers are moving and you develop this perspective of um, patterns and scales, but there's not really a great connection between your own inner ear and the technique. So for me, uh, there was a, 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 a lack of balance for a while because I think that's very common when you go through the preparing the, the vehicle stage where you gotta learn, you have to be able to at least develop enough technique so that those inner um, the inner melodies can find their way into your um, fingers, into your ear. But uh, so that was really of great um, uh, value, those lessons. And then I wanted to expand my um, compositional writing, and uh, I, I went to Berkeley College of Music, and that was just fantastic too. Because uh, although when I got there, I, I kind of knew all the theory you, that I uh, that I needed to know. You know, when you're a teenager and you leave home, you, you, you learn a certain independence and that's very valuable. And you're surrounded by other musicians who all have the same dreams and hopes. And uh, you get to play, you're just, uh, I would play with all these incredible guys. And I always felt, uh, even when I was young and I was practicing you know, tremendous amounts of hours, you know, I was one of those guys that put in eight, nine, 15 hours sometimes in a day. And, uh, there was always that trying to find the balance of the technique and the and the inner ear. And when I was going to Berkeley, there was just all of a sudden like all these other players. And I always felt I listened to all my Led Zeppelin records and all the blues and classical and jazz and and it was just funny because I would hear players like uh, Jimi Hendrix or Jimmy Page or Brian May or blues player Al Demiola. I got heavily into Demiola, McLaughlin, Santana. And I just realized that um, I can't play any of that stuff. You know, I'm not good enough to play blues, you know. I would hear blues and I'd, I'd kind of learn, learn my blues scale, but I'd be like, I can't play li like that. First of all, I can't. Second of all, why would I? Because they're already doing it and they're doing it really well. But the thing that, uh, when I look back at my entire career, there was always one thing that was always of paramount importance, and I didn't even realize this until some years ago. And that was uh, the inspiration for a good idea. 
of a good idea. So I would be playing when I was a kid and learning some riffs here and some riffs there. But the thing that really pushed my button, the thing that really turned me on, was when I would play something that seemed um, different than anything I heard, you know, and, and something that really came from me. So, um, and this was what I thought was the way to do it because I just never felt good enough to play like anybody else. And uh, coincidentally, I accidentally developed my own style as a result because I, it was my own little secret. You know, it's like, oh my God, look at this riff. Oh my God, that's so weird. No one else will care about it. No one will even know. But boy, it sure is fun, you know. And, and they would, you know, I'm a very abstract kind of an artist, you know. And uh, so that's how I developed my style. And then uh, Berkeley was a great experience. And then uh, when I discovered Frank Zappa, he was doing it all, you know, for me. He had um, the compositional skills, the comedy, the visceral guitar playing. So I was just completely enamored with Frank's music. And Frank, when you discover his catalog and it resonates with you, it's like a life treasure. But never in my wildest dreams did I ever expect to play in his band, you know? And I was 18 when I first called him. And um, I started calling his house when I was like 15 because I got his phone number from a, a Rolodex in New York City that uh, somebody stole from my studio, a friend of mine. And it was his home phone number. And um, he was always on tour. And uh, finally one day he picked up the phone and I, I caught him in a good mood. <laughs> and he accepted for me to send him some transcriptions I was working on of his music and a tape of my band. And next thing you know, um, he wanted to hire, he wanted to audition me for the band. When I told him I was 18, he said, well, you're too young. But he hired me as a transcriptionist. So I started transcribing his guitar solos and drums. Him and Vinnie would do these things where they, Vinnie Caliuta, where they would go crazy and I would transcribe it. And then he started, I moved out to California, and I, I started transcribing everything, because back in those days, in order to copyright your music, you had to have an actual piece of sheet music and send it to Washington. So my job was to go through Frank's entire catalog and make sure that there was sheet music for everything. And if there wasn't, I had to create it. It was a glorious project, you know? And, um, and then when I was 20, I kept transcribing but um, I joined the band you know he auditioned me for the band and I joined the band I I worked for Frank for like six years and you know and and there was the um, I mean how, how could you possibly ask for to be graced any more beautifully than you know West Side for me West Side Story Bill Westcott Joe Satriani Frank Zappa and then my, so I would say that those guys were my mentors, but finally then there was, uh, when I left, uh, you know, when I left Frank, or Frank had kind of like shut down and got into the Synclavier, and I still had these heavy rock roots that I loved. And David Lee Roth left Van Halen, and <laughs> I stepped in, and he was probably my last great mentor because um, it was David Lee Roth, you know, and absolutely extraordinary performer, intense individual, and 
I learned so much. It was such a different everything from before helped create a foundation, but I wasn't ready for what I was going to get from Dave. And he really he really worked with me very very carefully in, you know, the, the, the way that I moved, you know, the stage presence because he was just a master at that. He'd stand in front of any amount of people and just own it. And I would just watch and marvel, you know. So that kind of like, you know, you, you rubs off on you. you. You learn from the people you hang out with. And uh, that was just such a great time, you know, being in David Lee Roth's band in the 80s. It was amazing. And then um, White Snake, which was also an incredible experience, you know. David Coverdale was just a marvel to watch, too, because that guy sang his ass off every single night on stage. It was unbelievable. No excuses. Bam, you know. But then um, all, of the, all of that experience from my past was kind of building up to that four-year-old little boy that was hearing all this music in his head that didn't sound like anything else that he was hearing outside in the world. And I just reached a point where, you know, push and come to shove inside of me. And although I, I really enjoyed all of those past experiences with all those people, and I had to, I just felt compelled, I had to create this music that was in my head. And that's when I hunkered down and kind of felt like I was putting my career, I was completely losing any kind of career I might have had because I was making a lot of money with all those guys and being a rock star and, and selling millions of records and it was fantastic but just that that creative impulse that uh, abstract creative impulse in me it just it, it had to blossom it had to flower because uh, I just couldn't uh, I couldn't let it sit anymore and I, I, I put all the rock star stuff away I thought my career was over and I made Passion and Warfare <laughs> and uh, to my surprise when it came out it was, it was a great success and that's the story of Steve I.